Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Welcome to episode 279 with my guest Anna W. We're going to talk about narcolepsy and codependency. My name is Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads. From medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. Uh, I'm not a therapist. It's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. The website for this show is mentalpod.com. Go there, uh, check it out. Uh, there's a forum you can post in, uh, tons of different threads on every imaginable topic. Um, you can read blogs and guest blogs on the website. You can also fill out surveys. Um, they're anonymous. Uh, maybe there's a chance we'll read your survey on the on the show. We read tons of them on it. Um, and you can also browse and see how other people have filled out uh, surveys. Just click the um, browse responses uh, tab, and then you'll uh, you can kind of I don't know what the word is to rifle through them. My brain is uh, sludge is the best word that comes to mind. My, I am definitely in a depressive trough uh, right now. And what um, a great way to start the show. That There's nothing people love more than uh, hearing on the front end of a couple-hour podcast that uh, I'm going to be bringing you down for the next two hours. Um, that's like being stuck on, on an elevator with somebody, uh, and the first thing they say is they turn to you is, uh, have I told you about my rash? But uh, this is probably about day three, maybe, of being in this uh, this valley, and it's more mental than it is emotional. Um, 
the, the interesting thing about it is when it really kicked into gear was when I was emceeing Mental Health Matters Day on the steps of California's Capitol uh, on the morning. I can't even remember what morning it was this, this week. Was it Tuesday? Uh, yeah, it was Tuesday morning. Um, a great organization called uh, Mental Health America of California um, asked me to, to emcee this event, and it was a great event, but for some reason that morning my depression had just come roaring back and so I'm up there on the steps of the Capitol and I really should have shared this with somebody I should have shared it with the crowd but I didn't want to bring them down and that's such a fucked up thing it's such a hypocritical thing that here I am talking about how we should erase the stigma of mental illness and I didn't want to mention that I was suffering in that moment, that it took every fiber of my being to not beg them to just say, can I please just go back to my hotel room and sleep? Because just this is agonizing being awake and being around people. Um, it was hard talking. I was supposed to talk for 15 minutes. I think I talked for like seven maybe. Um it was hard to put the words together, I'm, you know, and I'm sure a lot of it was in my head. But in between bringing speakers up, um, I just sat off to the side with my my head in my hands because I ju- I couldn't even I couldn't even converse with people. And and it's um, it was like that feeling, you know, when you're hungover and and everything just like the um, the effort of things just becomes multiplied. And the only thing that feels good is to just sit staring at the floor with your head in your hands. That that was what it was like. And I just kept saying, you know, four or five hours, you will be back home and you will be able to sleep. You will be able to, to, to go to bed. So that's, I'm on like day three of that. And I almost wasn't going to do surveys in the, in the show um, tonight, but I, um, I, I don't know. I, I want to have some surveys. Um, it's just not going to be as many as, uh, as I normally do. And I'm torn because I want to be honest with you about what it is that I'm feeling and experiencing, but I don't want to appear overly dramatic. I don't want this to appear uh, that I'm looking for pity or sympathy or a flood of emails, um, you know, saying that you're, you know, saying nice things. And and I suppose this is just so typical of the person who experiences depression is we just were like a wounded animal that we just want to ball up in the corner and be left alone. And uh, that's just kind of where I'm at right now. And um, enjoy it. Suck on that. Suck on that, listeners. Let's get to some surveys before you uh, fashion a, a rope around your neck. This is from the Struggle in a Sentence survey, and this was filled out by a guy who calls himself Catatonia. Catatonia. And about his depression, and I very much relate to his description of his depression. Uh, it's even 
what my psychiatrist calls mine, uh, severe clinical treatment-resistant depression. It feels like everything is gray and dull. Nothing gives you pleasure or satisfaction. You're tired all the time and can't get anything done because you feel tired and hopeless. You feel stuck and alone and you want to be alone. You don't feel really present at all. Your memory sucks. I relate to everything except the hopeless part. Thank God I don't feel hopeless because I've been through this before and I will go through it again. And if experience has taught me anything, it's you just ride it out and I will ride it out. And that makes it easier because, man, when you don't have hope, that's and you think it's going to be forever. That's when it gets really, really tough. Um, and I think if I if if I didn't have hope, I know I, I don't think I could joke about it like uh, like I can. And um, thank you for that. That and i am going to go see my psychiatrist i made an appointment with him to uh, to go back but i can't get in for a couple of weeks oh how many of you have just dreamed that the next med is going to be the one that does it i have spent the last 3 days just dreaming that the next one is going to be the one it's almost like love addiction with <laughs> with the pharmaceutical industry uh the next one that comes along is going to be my soulmate, my brain mate. Uh, this was filled out by a ready for something good, and she writes about her depression. Uh, if I get out of bed, that's a good sign. However, I will only be successful if I can stay out of bed. The second I lie, lay, my brain. The second I lie back down to answer emails or do some online shopping, I might as well give up on the day. Thank you for that. Oh, and about uh, her binge eating disorder. I can never get the candy wrappers open fast enough. A friend once jokingly told me that I looked like a crackhead trying to get a fix. That was the one and only time I ate candy in front of anyone else. It's amazing how people who don't have an addiction or at least a specific addiction don't know how easily shamed the, the addict can be. You know, I'm sure I'm sure your friend meant nothing by it, but I get how that that cut right through you and shamed you. Sending you some love. Um, this is filled out by Kat, and she writes about her body dysmorphic disorder. Like no photo or reflection will ever capture the real me. And then a snapshot from her life. Deciding not to leave the house today because the makeup doesn't feel like a mask. Spending every cent of my savings on cosmetic treatments. Feeling like my life can't start until I fix my flaws. Thank you for that. And she would like to hear more episodes on uh, body dysmorphic disorder, uh, specifically when it's uh, somebody's face. I don't know if it was his face, but the episode with Juan uh, Medina, uh, he is a, a guy who... Um, has body dysmorphic uh, dysmorphia uh, disorder. So maybe check that one out. This is filled out by Kitten Pants, and she writes about being a sex crime victim. Uh, Your 10 minutes of pleasure has caused me a lifetime of pain. Wow, that is heavy and so profound. That is so profound. Thank you for that. Man, when you guys are able to to just condense something... um, so eloquently. Uh, A snapshot from her life. Uh, Me. 
Hey mom, I had an interview for that new position that opened up that I've wanted for years. It's looking really promising. Mom. Silence. I went jogging yesterday and wore my new shoes. Did I tell you they were on sale? So-and-so is jealous of me because I'm a better runner. Did I tell you about the run I'm doing? Very easy to picture picture that conversation. Um, and this is filled out by a Dirty Art Kid and a snapshot from her life. Uh, every time I vomit up my meal, I'm reminded of the all-girls residential program where I learned this trick. Uh about her anorexia, maybe if I'm small enough, I can re-enter childhood. I will be innocent again and worth protecting. And about her bipolar depression, she writes, I love myself. Everything I've been through makes sense. I'm a worthwhile person and I can make it in the world. Just kidding. That was my hypomania. I fear that I'm inadequate. I fear that I'm inadequate. So recently I've been punching myself a lot. Sometimes I feel like my full-time job. Mental illness is convincing myself I'm so alone why hypervigilance I should try to do something I hate my kids seeing me like that I just imagine killing people I woke up with rats in my hair they warp reality am I losing myself or am I becoming myself I go back to bed hiding underneath the sofa while people were shooting outside the house I was able to get myself out of Scientology put a gun to my mother's head and I was 11 years old and you're just garbage moving from one person's house to the next person's house and you just hope they don't throw you out like garbage you know so i planned my suicide because you won't ask for help i'm asking for help i'm not pretending everything's okay i'm not trying to do it alone i'm really happy that i did it because a lot of good things have happened since then that, that option just evaporated and i'm, I'm not going to kill myself i don't think i have what the woman who is not right for me anyway <laughs> wants i'm here with uh, anna w what other issues do you have other than narcolepsy and, and codependence or is that are those the two big ones? Those are pretty huge. Okay. Those are the I mean ones. that's certainly a meal. Yes. <laughs> it's a meal. Yeah. Um where would be and you're nervous. Yes, which, I which am. Which is okay. Yeah. It's okay. I was telling her before we started rolling. It's uh it's all good. There's no mistakes. I, I, almost every time I um leave a recording session, I think of, oh, I should have said that. Oh, I wish I would have said that differently. So it's it's all good. Um the good news is you're in recovery. You're actually here in town for a conference for one of your support groups, the uh the codependency uh support group. Um and where where would be a good place to uh oh let me ask uh, how old are you? 33. Okay. Um, and where were you raised? I was raised in Florida. Okay. Um, what was home life like? I mean, obviously from the cliff notes I've gotten from you, it was pretty chaotic. But g- give me some snapshots from, from childhood. Yeah. My home life was pretty dysfunctional. And um, Did you know it at the time that it was dysfunctional or was it just your normal? Yes, I did know it because part of my family was very sure to point that out and blame the other side of the family and blame the other in-laws and say they're the ones that are fucking it up uh, yeah pretty much so so like your dad's side of the family would blame your mom's side of the family or that but the opposite my mom's side of the family was uh oh look what look what's going on because of your dad and you need counseling and you need therapy and your dad was the drinker Mm -mm. Your mom was the drinker. What was your dad? 
my dad was the enabler. Oh, which is so insidious. That that control is that need to control is yeah. go ahead, talk about it. Yeah. Well, even today when um I talked to my dad about setting boundaries with my mom, who's an active drinker today, he will be like, Well, you know, Anna, why don't you just try talking to her and just reasoning with her and just letting her know how you feel and maybe listening to her feelings. It's like, I am just not going to endure that abuse from her to try to make her nice to me, dad. Just not doing it. Sorry. <laughs> That's so, the way you want to handle it. Fine. So he's kind of doing that typical codependent thing where they think if there's just a perfect way to phrase it, that person yes. will change, yes. which is insanity. It really is. I mean, yeah, it may have a couple of people. It, it may be that way. But if you're talking about an untreated alcoholic or addict, that, that ain't going to work. No, there's no reasoning with her at all. Um, I've tried. At least there, as long that. as she's drinking and not getting help. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, so what, yeah. What, 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 what feelings did that bring up when your, when your dad, uh, said that or says that, uh, to you? Do you just want to strangle him? Yeah. It's a trigger button for me. And sometimes it's not as much of a trigger as others. And when I say a trigger, um, I mean that I have a full body response. Like my heart starts pounding, my legs get like jelly and Do you ever get tingles I on get your scalp? Angry. <laughs> I get that sometimes when I'm really when I just feel really angry at somebody. My head feels hot. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And um and sometimes I I just say, Okay, well, I I gotta go. I love you, I gotta go, something's going on or um you know, that's since recovery, though. Before recovery, for me, it was trying to argue to death with him and have the, How'd have that the go? final say. <laughs> oh, it was exhausting. <laughs> oh, man. They can't, the, the, the untreated codependent can't see that their drink is the alcoholic. That's their addiction. Is it? Or whatever other excitement. And what other, yeah, yeah, controlling somebody else's life. I heard a, a hilarious uh, joke one time. I think I've shared it on the podcast, but what's the last thing to go through a codependent's life right before they die? Someone else's life. <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> uh, so go ahead. Well, um, here's a snapshot for you. Um, so into recovery, I was getting into one of those arguments with my dad. And I just stopped and I was like, well, dad, you could be right. And you know what he he did? He turned to me and he said, well, you know, I could be wrong, too. Wow. <laughs> like, so that so that's just a snapshot of like, we have to argue about everything. Yeah. But it sounds like at that moment, he he was at least trying to be open minded. Oh, uh, we uh, both uh, started laughing. Yeah, I mean, it okay. was he was just pulling my leg at that point but yeah yeah so give me some other snapshots from uh from childhood so some other snapshots are um the just being i was the oldest child how many kids um just my sister and i and feeling like i was the protector of her but also i was jealous of her for the attention that she got when she came into the world and um you know, in a, in a home where I already 
wasn't getting what I needed emotionally, it was even more shocking to this little girl inside of me. And so then the fighting started between my parents and um, they would be up in the, you know, late hours into the night fighting. And I would just kind of be there like frozen and playing with my little toys and trying to dissociate basically. So I where, didn't have a mental breakdown. <laughs> where would you escape to into your mind just to play fantasy? Yes. And analytical. So I was, I would get the Lincoln logs out and see all the different ways I could arrange the Lincoln logs into a house. <laughs> it was just like, I had to keep my mind on something that was going to occupy my my brain. Not. What do you do for a, a living? By I'm a scientist. Oh, really? What, uh, what kind of science? Um, I do research and development and, um, it's really fun actually. So that analytic part paid some dividends. It did. Yes. Yeah. I mean, if you stop to think about all the art that wouldn't be in the world, if people didn't have tr terrible childhoods, <laughs> you go to the movies and you can thank, you can thank untreated alcoholism probably for, uh, some creativity in there so uh, true but go ahead you were you were given uh some snapshots so you would kind of dissociate yeah yes i i did and i tried to fight it i kind of developed my own coping mechanisms with fighting the dissociation so you were aware it was happening obviously not consciously it was i think just a reaction to it um so then my parents, um, my dad was drinking and he, he's not an alcoholic per se, but he can certainly abuse alcohol. Um, he was at that time. My mom was an alcoholic, like a physical body addiction that she can't stop if, if she doesn't get medical help or she could, could, die. could die. Yeah. yeah. And so, so she's had no sobriety really since then. She had 17 years. Oh no. In the past four, she's relapsed yeah was she uh, going to support groups for help and then she let me guess she stopped going codependent uh, yes codependents got in the way um got into a codependent relationship and then they you know they went to meeting support group meetings together and then she was not married to your dad then they, no they i'm sorry this was her second husband okay. yeah and um she just felt like oh everybody in those meetings is on his side and they don't like me and stopped going and and her pride really got the best of her I, I think it's just my point of view but to to kind of move back a little bit um before they got divorced um well i'll just back up and say from the time that she, her drinking started to really get out of control was the time the fighting got worse between them. And um, my she ended up kicking my dad out. That's interesting. The alcoholic kicking the codependent out. Yeah. And so my dad, you know, naturally, especially in that time, um, men did not get custody of their children mm -hmm. without a good reason and so my mom had custody of us two girls and so she was drinking and driving us around 
And again, I would dissociate. Actually, I would fall asleep um, to cope with it. Mm -hmm. Um, She would take us to bars with her to meet men and stuff like that. That's that's safe. Oh, yeah. It was very (laughs) safe. I learned a lot of good stuff then. (laughs) Yep. Pool. How to draw tattoo pictures. (laughs) That is so sad. I mean, we laugh about it, but there's nothing sadder to me than somebody bringing their kids to a bar while they're trying to hook up. Yeah. Yeah, I know. Now that, you know, I'm an adult, I just kind of look at that like, oh my gosh, I couldn't, I can't imagine doing that to a child. But she did. And And that's more so really, I think, alcoholism than anything else. It it really, uh, addiction, the the addict, the untreated addict can't see how much it's warping their moral character. They they rationalize and justify everything. But go ahead. Yeah, no, and that's a good point. And that's, that's kind of sets the tone for the eggshells that I felt like I walked on. Like I literally, you know, doing the recovery work and the um, inner child work that I've done, I've realized I literally felt like my life was in danger during some of those moments, like being in the car with her while she's swerving all over the road. must have been terrifying. It really was. And and I couldn't do anything about it. And I asked for help like my, when my grandparents would come visit. And, you know, they were the biggest enablers of them all. And this was oh, your, mom's, your yeah, mom's parents? Yeah, her parents would come visit oh, everything's fine. Those beer bottles in the garage? Oh, no, those are from when your dad was living here. Those were his. There were like three trash bags full of beer bottles. Like, I don't think so. Those those weren't there before. But um, so, yeah, that that's kind of a good snapshot. And then one day, my dad picked us up from school. And he had trash bags. You see a theme here um, in the back of the car with our stuff in it. And apparently my mom's alcoholism got so bad. She packed her stuff up in trash bags and left it on the front by the mailbox for my dad to come pick it up. And she said, I can't take care of them anymore. Will you come, come get them? And so he did. And he never gave us back. Thank God. My dad was, he's, he's my hero. I mean, literally he, he saved our lives. Um, so, so you're grateful that uh, that happened. Very. Oh my gosh. And it was a tremendous relief to be back with your dad. Yeah, it really was. He felt safe. He felt nurturing. Um, he gave us what we needed. At that time, he was taking really good care of himself. You know, um, he was doing a lot of his own spiritual work, and. So it was a really good environment. So he was working on his codependency as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's ama- it's amazing the difference a parent can bring to the table when they're working on themselves and being open-minded. Talk about that if you would. Do you have any kids? I don't. Okay. Um, but talk, it, talk about it from the aspect of a child uh, and having a parent who's in recovery for whatever their ism is. Yeah. It, it Like I said, it felt safe. It felt secure it felt like i could breathe again and be be a kid again and you felt seen and heard yes yes and even what did it feel like in your body when when like when you would be with your mom what did it feel like in your body and when you would be with your dad 
What did it feel like in your body? With my mom, it felt ten- there was tension in my body. Um, I was h- completely hypervigilant, you know, uh, in other words, always on the lookout for what's going to happen next. What am I going to do to set her off? Um, like with, you're like you're the firewall for disaster. You're mm-hmm. if if disaster is going to strike, you're going to be the one that has to deal with mm-hmm. it because you will recognize it before your mom does. Is that fair? Yeah, or okay. I'll catch shit for <laughs> her recognizing it first. Okay. Yeah, um, that is fair. And with my dad, it was just you know I could be a kid again. He was taking care of us instead of us having to take care of him. Um, so because of that, I was really eager to do everything I could to give back and to help my dad back. Cause I knew that he, I mean, he's a single parent, you know, I had empathy for that. And, uh, so I became like the little housekeeper and the cook and just started taking care of everything, you know, and basically filling in his mom when I was a kid and a teenager. And as you look back on that now, um, like, would you call that an, an emotionally enmeshed relationship or was it more that you for fulfilling practical duties? Practical. Okay. So he didn't kind of, uh, bring his emotional shit to you and make you the little wife. No, no. Thank God. Yeah. No, he definitely didn't do that. He was, you know, he w- he went to parenting classes during that time. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard of Love and Logic Mm-mm. Parenting. It's a parenting style that you're not a helicopter parent, so you're not, you know, hovering all the time and trying to control and protect. Um, but you're not a police officer parent either. Or Well, maybe that's a bad analogy. Um, you're not a sergeant either, a drill sergeant. You're kind of a consultant. And so that's what he tried to be for us during those years was a consultant, letting us learn from our own actions, what consequences are like and, and stuff like that. He wasn't perfect, but you know, he, he did a good job with helping us to learn how to live life and make choices. And I think the most important thing too is, you know, I'm not a parent, but I imagine when a child feels that that parent is trying, that's hugely important. Mistakes are going to happen. But if you get the feeling that that parent is conscious that they want to be the best parent they can, then that's 99% of it, I would imagine. Absolutely. Um, so, you know, you were talking earlier about your dad trying to get you to talk to your mom. Is Is that... Does your dad kind of sometimes lose his way with his codependency in that? Because that, to me, that doesn't really jibe with the, the guy who was in recovery when you were a kid. Or is that just how powerful codependency is? Well, it's funny you say that because he even did that when I was a kid. Well, you know, Anna, your mom loves you and she's doing the best she can. And she may not be able to show you how she loves you, but she really does. And just give her a chance. Because at one at at a certain point, I refused to visit her. I refused to go over there every other weekend or whatever it was the court said. Which sounds like a super healthy thing for a kid to do. I was learning to set boundaries. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, he didn't encourage it. And I wish he did. I wish today that he would see how important it 
was for me to be validated. That was one thing that I didn't really get during that time. Um, one of the things that I didn't get was, was that validation that, yeah, that what she did was fucked up and, and it wasn't right. And I don't need to be a part of it. Have you ever had a conversation with your dad where you thank him for the the effort that he's put into to try to be a present dad and also ask him to respect your boundaries as far as how often or even whether or not you see your mom? Yes. And how did how did that go? He he had he wishes he could have done more. He just, even despite me saying, "Oh my gosh, dad, you saved our lives." He doesn't feel like he did enough. And with regards to my mom, that goes in one ear and out the other. And so I can't I can't really rely on him to respect bound, the boundaries with that subject when I ask by asking for them. So I just have to set them. And so what that looks like for me now is in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, he's not going to stop on this. And then I say out loud, okay, dad, well, I got to go. I love you. Talk to you soon. And we hang up or if we're in person. Yeah. So many people think if they make it up an excuse to go or just say, I have to go, that that means they're a terrible person. And that is one of the greatest emotional myths. It is. Ever. I remember the first time I started doing that. I would, when I would call my mom, I would do it when I was on my way somewhere where I knew I would be there in four minutes. And that was, that was how I could handle it. Because otherwise, it would just fill me with just dread and sadness. Um, so it sounds like the, the the big blind spot that your dad has is with your mom's unmet needs and far as far as seeing you. But he's pretty healthy in in other ways as far as understanding um, and respecting you. Yeah, for the most part, I okay. think so. Um, give me some other snapshots from. Uh, childhood or adolescence mm. if, there, if there aren't any more that come up we can move forward to the next thing yeah um, the the only other thing you know one of the reasons I reached out to you or the main reason really is because I have narcolepsy and the symptoms um, gosh when I hear you talk or some of the guests or some of the surveys read I am like, wow, this sounds so similar to what I experience with narcolepsy. And I haven't really heard anybody else share their experience of narcolepsy and basically PTSD recovery. So uh, you believe that your narcolepsy is a result of, of PTSD? No, I, I don't. I believe I've had it my whole life. Okay. That I was probably born with it because I've had symptoms since I was, I mean, my mom wrote about how I used to sleep too much as a baby even. Um, but having PTSD and having narcolepsy. That's a pretty presents, sweet combo. Yeah, it presents 
a huge difficulty with trying to get better from the PTSD or trying to work through it. Does stress trigger your narcolepsy? Absolutely, yes. And what what is the PTSD from, from the childhood with your mom? From the childhood trauma, okay. yeah. Um, when did you, well, it sounds like the, you had narcolepsy for as long as you can remember. You, you know, right. Your mom said you were yeah. constantly sleeping. Um, how does it present itself? So it, oh goodness, so many ways. Um, and one of the things that Anna said to me before we started recording was, I need my notes because when my narcolepsy kicks in, my brain basically goes to screensaver and uh, it's hard to put your thoughts together and you grasp for words and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so here's a great seminal moment for you on that note. Um, and this is jumping ahead to adulthood for me. Uh, I was working on my master's in science and I got to teach my first science lab nice. to the college. Any, any particular branch in science? Biology. Oh, okay. Yeah. So it was my first time teaching. They didn't really prep us very well. They just kind of gave us, oh, here's the lab we're doing this week. Go at it. And I I was so nervous just from that alone. And then they told us, oh, and the, the major professor so-and-so is going to come monitor you guys during over the course of your first few weeks just to make sure everything's good. What do you know? This guy shows up on my first lab teaching. <laughs> and I didn't know I had narcolepsy at the time. So as I share this experience, just know that I had no idea what was going on with me. I thought maybe everybody experiences this when they're nervous. This is what stage fright is. I don't know. But um, I was up there teaching. And I stopped making sense to myself. And as that started to happen, I started to get more nervous. Gosh, even just right now recounting it, I'm starting to get shaky. <laughs> it was so stressful. So I started like not making sense to myself. So that fed my fear. And as my fear grew, I started to make even less sense. It was like a spiral effect. And my legs felt like wobbly and my brain felt like jello, I would say. Um, and then I, I went into this state where I f felt like I was kind of making stuff up, Paul. Really? <laughs> to my class. <laughs> and were you or did like, it just feel that way? Or I, you don't remember? I kind of... So if, have you ever had a dream and then you wake up and you... you kind of remember it mm -hmm. and then the memory of it kind of goes away as you go so that's what this experience was like for me it was like a dream so my memory during this dream was not the greatest um what i was experiencing was something called cataplexy which is how do you spell that cataplexy is c-a-t-a-p-l-e-x-y you gotta remember that for scrabble <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> a good one um and so what i was experiencing cataplexy is triggered by strong emotion whatever that is for me mm -hmm. all narcoleptics have a little bit different experiences and, with that and is 
cataplexy always present in narcolepsy? No, it's not. Um, it, no, there are a, a good significant portion of narcoleptics who don't have cataplexy symptoms. Mm-hmm. I feel like they're the lucky ones. <laughs> they just get s- sleepy. Right. Yeah. Okay. And, did, and you, did you get sleepy when all this was going on? No. But I just lacked the control and um, the mental focus and my body was like not really responding. So it sounds like with your type of narcolepsy, sometimes it presents itself as uh, cataplexy and other times it presents itself as being drowsy or sometimes a combination of the two or just one or the other no that's that's a really good um, way to describe it it's it's just kind of a combination of both okay and sometimes at the same time sometimes not usually i will have more cataplexy events usually they only last for a few seconds you know maybe 30 seconds or something that day that felt like that lasted for only 10 minutes I mean, it just did not go away. Um, Oh, to finish that story, I got to tell you, um, the next morning I got a call from my major professor and he's like, Anna, what happened last night in class? And I was like, what are you talking about? And he proceeds to tell me that the professor that monitored me came into his office and demanded that I be fired because I was teaching bullshit. (laughs) Oh, my God. Yeah. And I didn't know how to explain it. I blamed it on Wikipedia. Sorry, Wikipedia people, but I did. You just <laughs> I, said you got erroneous information, and that's yeah. And I because I didn't. I truly didn't know how else to explain it. There was no other explanation for me. It's, I must have written down stuff from Wikipedia wrong because I did look on Wikipedia. So, but now looking back today, I know. Oh my gosh, that was cataplexy. That was narcolepsy that I was dealing with. So, so yeah. The, Were you able to keep the teaching slot? Yes, yes. My professor stood up for me and he's like, that doesn't sound like the Anna I know. I promise this won't happen again. I don't know what happened, but I'm sure there's an explanation. And What a great guy. Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah. So, combination of sleepiness, this cataplexy thing, it's... Um, it keeps me from getting up on time in the mornings because my dog and my cat will trigger it because they make me so happy. <laughs> um, Say that again. Like in being the... happy will trigger cataplexy. Mm-hmm. Really? Yes. That's so bizarre. I know. You would think it would just be negative things that would do that. Yeah, happy, sad. So Extreme. really, anything kind of. Yeah, anything one way or the other. Wow. That's and that's what makes it to me. That was one of the things that made it such a challenge to get better emotionally, spiritually, (laughs) mentally, because my I was afraid to be happy. I was afraid to be sad. I was afraid to be excited. I was afraid to be angry, you know, like. And it must have... Feelings were scary. <laughs> and were, were you in recovery groups before you were diagnosed with uh, narcolepsy and cataplexy? 
I just started going when I got the diagnosis. Because that must have been incredibly confusing because nowhere in the literature for these support groups does it talk about your knees buckling and all this other right. stuff. So you must have thought, what? Yeah. What did you think? I, I'm, I'm still alone. Uh, nobody else is like me. I mean, what? I, You know what I would always tell people is, for whatever reason, I'm more sensitive than um, others. Because when I eat bad, that, that puts an extra burden on my body. And so my narcolepsy tends to be worse when I'm eating a lot of processed foods or something. So my excuse for eating healthy was, I'm just more sensitive than other people. So I, I have to eat this way. Um, or... I'm just more tired than other people, you know, whatever mm -hmm. it was. Like, I need my sleep. I need my 23 hours of sleep. <laughs> I would li I would literally sleep 14 hours a night and take a three-hour nap and still be exhausted. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So how did you finally come to be diagnosed? Or are there any other snapshots of uh, your narcolepsy that you'd like to share that you think? Uh... I think um, just... In childhood, it, I was a sleeper. Um, when I became a teenager and started going through the menstrual cycle, it got worse. Um, and it seemed Boy, to be cyclical with it. Does anything get better with puberty? No, I don't think so. I mean, so. really, everything just kind of turns to shit. Basically. Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> yeah. Those darn hormones. Yeah. So, and then, so that, yeah, that made it real fun. And when you do sleep, are you an unusually heavy sleeper? Um, do you sleep like a normal person? Are you hard to wake up? That, yeah, that depends too. I'm, it, sometimes narcoleptics can have periods of insomnia. And where the, the, our brain just won't shut off. It won't go to sleep. I used to think it was just anxiety. And so I tried to do like a lot of meditation exercises and taking melatonin. And um, one of the things I did that it didn't work fairly well was say the ABCs. Um, but instead of just ABC, you know, say something I'm grateful for with each letter of the alphabet. Oh. And... There was once I had to go through the alphabet of gratitude twice, and but other than other than that, I was able to go to sleep pretty easily how the do first you, round. Uh, how do you find something that starts with X? That ex-boyfriend is dead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm grateful for X-rays. <laughs> I don't know. Um, so. Uh, are there any uh, narcolepsy uh, snapshots that that you'd like to share, uh, other than the, sure. the one where you're teaching? Okay. Yes, the so what so vividly there were mornings that I can remember very vividly where I would be in bed sleeping as a kid, and I would smell the bacon sizzling in the kitchen and the eggs cooking, and I wanted to get up and eat so bad, but I was stuck in this dream state. And yet I was aware of everything that was going on around me. I could hear the people in the living room and in my dream state, I could see them. And so they were 
like everybody who was already awake in the house was part of my dream and I would call to them and tell them I'm trying to get up help me get up and I couldn't would anything come out of your mouth no but it, I heard it yeah but it was it's something so that's that's in a category called hypno okay I mean butcher the pronunciation because I've never heard anybody pronounce it but and you got it all, and you got it off and, and I got it off Wikipedia so it may be wrong say, thank you for finishing my joke <laughs> yeah <laughs> what's it called hypnagogic hallucinations hypnagogic hallucinations and so those can be auditory they can be visual they can be um, tactile so like a feeling which I've had that too and so this would be um, an example of maybe an auditory and it's not a true hallucination because it's basically my dreams and i'm my consciousness is aware of them is basically what's going on and so what i what i was experiencing though um during those mornings when i could smell breakfast and hear everybody and dream that they were all next to me talking was something called sleep paralysis and that is Basically, when your body is in the deep sleep state, because think about it, you don't want to be walking around acting your dreams out. So it's a good ev evolutionary mechanism that mm -hmm. we've developed. And so, but yet for me, because my conscious state and sleep states are mixing, I'm aware of it and I can't. So I feel trapped. It's like being in a corpse. Wow. So it's kind of crazy. Wow. And I didn't know this wasn't normal. And are those two, uh, hypno hypnogic and uh, hypnagogic, whatever the fuck it's called, <laughs> yeah. and, the, and the last thing you just mentioned, are, do those fall under the umbrella of narcolepsy? Yeah. So narcolepsy encompasses a huge amount of things the yes. cataplexy and uh, those other two unpronounceable things which i will learn for scrabble <laughs> um any other um no i i will say that i do fear and this isn't talked about anywhere so i don't know how to find information about it um i do fear that because of the traumatic events I went through, maybe there's things I, I'm not remembering or can't memories that I can't get to or access, which I know is normal mm -hmm. for just anybody in general. But I have an extra concern that I'll never be able to get to them because maybe I went into a cataplexy event when I was a child during these times and won't. And memory, they're lost to dreamland. Uh, and memory blanks are also a part of narcolepsy. Yeah. And actually, um, kind of moving forward, fast forwarding into adulthood, the reason that I, you know, I'd been going to doctors for 10 years, like, I'm so sick and tired of being sick and tired. And I mean, at one point, I had a doctor tell me, well, you know, you do want to be a doctor when you grow up. This is when I was my, doing my second year of college so no doctor classes no science classes all just the fundamental stuff english history whatever well you know doctors um uh, doc medical students often imagine the symptoms that they're studying so that may be what's going on here 
<laughs> I'm just like, really? So, so doctors weren't very helpful for me and it, it took 10 years to get a diagnosis, but I had a chiropractor who was really in tuned with what was going on. He was like, okay, you're getting these lightheaded kind of symptoms and it's not, um, what is that? Hypoglycemia. Vertigo. Oh, vertigo. vertigo. Okay. Yeah, he he checked me for vertigo. He said it's not vertigo, and you're getting headaches all the time still, and it's not musculoskeletal. Like I made nerves. sure. Yeah, yeah, I've made sure of that. And um, and this memory stuff now that you're telling me about, because I was having memory like the the memory pro- problems started to become more apparent. Um, he's like, I'm really concerned. I think you need to see a neurologist. And I went to a neurologist with a teaching hospital and I just loved it because they were like scientists like me. He's like, okay, go get a psychological exam and I want him to check your memory too and and you need to get a sleep study. So I did. The psychological exam showed that I was pretty normal except I had pretty extreme ADHD. And which I know now is because if my brain's not stimulated, I'll go to sleep. (laughs) And is that also under the umbrella of uh, narcolepsy or is that a separate thing? No. What? The ADHD. That's, uh, I, I would say that, and the, my doctors, um, also would say that the ADHD is a symptom of my narcolepsy like that's one of the ways it's manifesting is that i see if if my brain's not stimulated at least for for this particular set of tests it showed that i was not able to pay attention when something was very repetitive and boring basically so it sounds like your your brain there's no five it's zero or ten yeah yeah that's about right and and that makes that presents a difficulty in recovery too because I want to be somewhere in between. I don't want to be all or nothing, you know? I mean, that's the bulk of recovery is how do we find a balance in our lives? Exactly. How do we get away from black and white thinking? How do we do things in moderation? How do we, you know, take nuanced views of things instead of extremes? Wow, that's challenging. Yeah, it really is. So what are some... um, other parts of your uh, struggles. Do, do you want to talk about the being married to somebody who was, um, was he uh, undiagnosed or was he not treating his uh, bipolar? He was not diagnosed. Okay. And we did have a therapist that suggested that he has bipolar. And when I went back and told my therapist who had been, who had seen him a couple times with me. Um, she's like, Oh yeah, I could have told you that. It's like, mm-hmm. really? So, so it had been suggested by medical, you know, mm-hmm. by our therapist, but, um, he just threw that out the window and never pursued getting, the, you know, looking into that. So yeah, that was really difficult because of all of my codependency issues. You know, I was attracted to somebody who I couldn't be emotionally connected with, who um, I didn't have to worry about him getting too close to me 
emotionally. Because he was a project, not a a partner. Yeah. Um, But yet, I really couldn't control him. He made that very clear. He was, um, he, he had the tendency to get pretty abusive, especially verbally. Would it, would it be particularly bad when he was in his mania or the depths of his depression, or did, was it unrelated to those t- two things? It would be particularly bad when he was in his mania, although he would mostly, yeah, I would say mania. He He could definitely act out in depression mode too, but not as bad. But there was one time where... Um, he had been cheating on me, and I kind of knew it but couldn't prove it. And I was, we were in a transition period moving from the West Coast to the East Coast. And um, I was going to go down and visit my family after staying with him for a little while. And he did not want me to stay with him for that little while. He's like, no, you need to go. And so... You know, before I mentioned that my dad got kicked out when I was a child and then my mom gave us up and I didn't really emphasize when I shared that, that those were like hugely traumatic events for me as a child. They were, they were abandonment and rejection to the T. And so that really set the stage for me to never be want to be abandoned again for the rest of my life. And that's a trigger. When I whenever I feel like I am, you know, I can feel that feeling welling up in my body of fear and shame and all of that. When you feel like you're about to be abandoned. Uh, and it sounds like you also probably get triggered when somebody wants to get too close to you as well <laughs> because you're afraid you're going to be abandoned. Well, no, I or I no. just they just wouldn't they I wouldn't even be attracted to them. Be like, oh, I'm not into that person if they were emotionally available. Oh, I see. That kind of thing. Yeah. Because I I can see looking back, there were a couple of guys that, you know, were interested and they were too emotionally available. I just couldn't. I had no chemistry with them. You found them boring (laughs) because there wasn't wasn't a high to it. Exactly. Yeah. So, no, I, I I was attracted to what I could fix. And, um. Yeah. So, what was I? We well, yeah, we're talking about your relationship with the with the boyfriend. Oh um, yes. Who was uh, who had the ex husband? Ex husband. Yes, yes. Right. Yes. I'm sorry. No, that's okay. Who had uh, bipolar? Was it bipolar? Oh, it wasn't diagnosed. You don't yeah, know if it was no, one or two. Um. So he, you found out that uh, you connected the um, him cheating on you with the abandonment issues. Is that what led to the your relationship dissolving? Was um finally knowing that he was cheating on you ultimately but that you know that took two more times of of infidelity for me to finally get that i couldn't fix it um but that during this one particular time um he got physically violent with me because i was like and i'm not blaming myself like gosh i mean nobody deserves to be abused of course but you know i was definitely um Begging him on, I'm like, no, I don't want to leave. I oh, I don't want to go. Don't you love me? <laughs> um, I mean, it. I was just my inner child was like pleading to da- this. Daddy, person, don't leave. Yes, yes. 
I can see that now so clearly, but back then I was th- that that's where you get the term adult child. I was an adult acting like a child, like begging, like don't leave me, don't leave me. And he just got pissed and started pushing me and shoving me and hurting me and um I can't I I can't even remember all the details. I just remember being manhandled um several times that night and it hurt and physically physically it hurt and a couple of days later i started seeing all these bruises pop up where i knew that this this was like i never bruised you know and so this was definitely from the physical scuffle when i was feeling the pain from mm-hmm. being manhandled so i reported it and there was an investigation and they ultimately said that there was not enough to my story. Um, basically, I couldn't explain exactly how I got each bruise well enough for them to substantiate my claims of abuse. And so they were dismissing the case. And I was devastated because this really happened to me. Here are my bruises. And but you had m- memory lapses because you were in a state of being triggered. Cataplexy. Yeah, yeah. I I was not able. I was, and I mean, this was like ten years ago, so I can't remember all the details even more so because of time passing. But um, I mean, gosh, I I was kind of in a dream state then, and I'm sure I was. That's had a big part of why I couldn't remember everything exactly the way they expected the report to be filed (laughs) wow so that so that's really sad to me because i know that i must not be the only one Mm -hmm. and you know when women or even men i'm sure this happens to in relationships when this you know if they have something like this where they dissociate or you know have an episode of some sort um and they can't get help because of it like that just sucks you know, I don't know. Yeah, it's um, I, I often say that, you know, when it comes to healing, sometimes you just have to put whether or not something is legally valid, put that aside from whether or not your feelings are valid and you need to process that with safe people. You know, I I think they're they're two they're two separate issues because there's so many things that will completely shatter your soul or wound it that aren't remotely prosecutable, but that doesn't mean that it's not it's not valid. Yeah, and what what kind of message does that send to those people who are going through that who don't know any better? You know, I know for me. Oh, it wasn't prosecutable. Oh, so okay, I just I made grew too up big a little. Of a deal. Yeah, yeah, or I grew up a little faster than my peers. Whatever, no big deal. I'm fine. You know. That's why therapy is so important <laughs> and, and support groups. Yeah. Um. Anything else about your relationship with uh, with him? Because I I get emails all the time from people. Um, although I think this would be a different category, mm-hmm. people who have a loved one who suffers uh, from some type of mental illness and they want to know how to support them. But it sounds like because you're 
ex-husband wasn't getting any kind of real help for it, um, that's a non-starter. Right. Exactly. Unless I'm wrong. No, I, I agree, at least in my experience, that I if I was going to give advice, which I try not to do, um, I'd rather just share my experience, strength, and hope, I would say, you get the help. You work on you. When After that incident with the bruising and stuff, we went to marriage counseling, and I said... Um, I told the, you know, marriage counselor what happened. And then she asked about my, my background and history. So it came out that I was a child of an alcoholic. And she said, you need to work on this. You need to work on you. And I was pissed. I bet. I literally walked out of that session and never went back. How could you say I'm the problem? He's the problem. But you know what? The truth is, I was the problem. Certainly part of it. I was the problem for me. Yeah. (laughs) He was his problem, but I was letting him be my problem too. That's why codependency is such a motherfucker for people to recognize, be it themselves or somebody else. It's... You're so wrapped up in that other person, that other person's issues are your god they they dominate your thinking yeah and it's sad because um my first few years in recovery um which you know i'm gonna be give myself a gentleness break i had to go through this period to get where i am today but my first few years i intellectualized everything and so i thought boundaries were asking for what i need and trying to make that happen. (laughs) (laughs) So in other words, dad, I need you to stop talking about, I I need you to stop recommending me to call my mom. As opposed to giving him consequences when he doesn't respect. Yeah, exactly. As opposed to making a different choice to not have to, deal with the thing that I'm trying to eliminate. Yeah. Yeah. But you you do have to that one time say, please Absolutely. don't do this. This is um feels inappropriate. I'm not comfortable with it. Um but from then on, instead of saying every time dad please stop doing this, you give him a consequence instead of trying to talk him into doing the not doing the thing that is annoying you. Is that is that correct? Right. But I would even say it's not even about giving him a consequence, which it does, as much as it's giving myself a different alternative. Protecting yourself. Because here's the here's the other caveat. When I because I did think about it, is oh, I'm going to give him a consequence. This is another way I approached it before I really got into recovery and started looking at me. Um, that's manipulation. That got to be manipulation for me. Oh, I'll show him. I'll give him a consequence for not doing what I wanted him to do, you know? So it became a way to punish. Right. Yeah. And that doesn't work. Yeah. As opposed to, I guess what they call detaching with love. Yeah. Talk about detaching with love. What is What does that look like? Mm. I mean, well, it sounds like 
when the thing you described earlier in the interview where your dad was pushing you to try to have more contact with your mom and you just said, I love you, dad, I have to go. Sure. I mean, that to me sounds like a completely pure example of detaching yeah, it, with love. Yeah. The others I'm thinking about are very similar to that. You don't try to it, change him. You don't try to um, push your feelings on him, unload um but you just extricate yourself in a way that is diplomatic. Right. Yeah. Now, yeah. what would happen if you were in a situation where you couldn't physically extricate yourself? Um, that's a great, that's a great question. There was a time when I was visiting my grandparents and some political discussions came up <laughs> and uh, I don't see the same way as they do anymore. They live in the mountains, so it's not like I can even go somewhere real quick. And so I just said, well, you see it how you see it, and I see it how I see it, and we see it differently, and that's okay. And they couldn't say anything else. Yeah. <laughs> they couldn't try to get me to do what they wanted me to do anymore. I see, because they were trying to push you to change your yeah, mind. Yeah, Just admit that they were right in yes. their mind. That, that I should be doing what they're doing and okay. being an informed citizen. And and I kept trying to say, well, you know, I know what's going on in the world around me, and this is how I choose to make a difference. And, you know, that's not what they thought I should be doing. So, yeah, so I just nipped it in the butt with that, and it worked. And you know what? The really cool thing was, and this never happened before, um, was they came to me afterward probably about a, about an hour afterward and said that they were sorry for pushing me and wow. for trying to push their views onto me. And you know what? That was a really powerful example of the power of detaching with love or um, not getting in the middle of craziness and the drama. Wow, you, know? you got some recovery, woman. Yeah, it, it's amazing. I get so excited when I have breakthroughs like that. So. <laughs> well, let's. This is a perfect time then for you to talk about recovery. What What were your ideas of what brought you to finally go to a support group? The the mar my marriage ending and not not being able to live in my own head. I could what do you not, mean, what do you mean by the, that? The racing thoughts. Oh, it became unbearable living became in your head. So unbearable. Um, I couldn't sleep for narcoleptic. That's kind of a big deal. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't eat everything that I eat went right through me. Um, uh, and if I could eat, cause I was nauseous all the time. Um, I lost 20 pounds in a month. I mean, it was just, it was bad. And was it because you missed him or you just felt shame that your marriage had ended? I really think that I was going through uh, a type of, of physiological withdrawal from all the internal chemical hits that he was feeding me. Mm-hmm. I mean, I really think that that's what it was. It, I, I don't know. Uh, it was I, a codependent I, withdrawal. <laughs> yeah, 
withdrawing from a an addiction or an enmeshment to a person um i have heard people who are heroin addicts say that they would rather kick heroin than withdraw from um a toxic love relationship that they spent days weeks in the fetal position couldn't eat lost tens of pounds um didn't want to get out of bed didn't want to live and it is very real. Yeah, those those yeah. Uh, those chemicals in your brain, it's a pharmacy and it's open 24 hours. And if you live with somebody that triggers um, those feelings of euphoria, um, mm-hmm. when you get what you want in your relationship with them, ooh, yeah, that yeah. is a powerful addiction. So um, you're in this terrible place. Yeah, I was, I was in this terrible place. And my grandparents, those... Those enablers, codependents, <laughs> they sent me a book and it was about, I, I won't mention the title. Okay. Um, I, I don't know. I don't. Is it in regard to an anonymous uh, support group? No, or? it's, it's um, in regards to a co- uh, codependency and what it can do to you. Okay. And. Well, what's the name of it? And if I need to, I'll just bleep it out or edit okay. it out. Um, it was called Women Who Love Too Much. Oh, yeah. That's okay to say that. Okay. Yeah. Um, I didn't realize. Yes. The the reason for the listeners why sometimes I um, we don't say the name of the particular support group is because there are a number of support groups out there that um, uh, prefer not to be uh, discussed in the media lest um, people who belong to them paint themselves as spokespeople and misrepresent it. So that's the reason sometimes why I'm very conservative about um, people not saying a specific name if it's one of those support groups that that kind of has that policy. Um, So uh, Women Who Love Too Much, is that what it's called? That was the name. Yeah, and so what happened? So um, one day I got so sick and tired of my racing thoughts I'm like, oh, I'll I'll pick up this book and read it, get my mind off all this crap. And I did. And I couldn't put it down because it described my story. And then reading through it, I was like, oh, my gosh, this is where I'm heading. If I don't get help, I'm going to kill myself through this crap. And and that was my first glimpse into reality of what was really going on and I went to my first meeting, uh, uh, recovery group mm-hmm. meeting after that. And and I had been um, kind of spotty meeting attendance. Um, it was a slow process for me the first few years. And, and was the focus uh, on this uh, support group, was the focus of it codependence? The focus of it, yeah, I would say is it was codependence and um, living dealing with the addict in your life. Okay. And it kind of helped and I kind of seemed to click, but it didn't really get in deep for me. Mm-hmm. It it didn't it I don't know, there was just something missing. And so there was after my divorce a couple years later there was this other support group um, that I had a counselor mentioned to me and then a couple other people. And finally, after the third time that this group had been mentioned to me, I was like, okay, I need to go. All right, universe, I get it. (laughs) Yes. And I went and I was like, oh my gosh, these are my people. Isn't that the best feeling? Yeah. 
Talk about that. I, I felt like I'd come home. I was so comforted to know that I wasn't alone and that there was actually hope <laughs> and laughter laughter and explanations and there was there was a path you know as a scientist and an analytical person i need a method <laughs> mm-hmm. i need a way i didn't get that before and and the first thing i did was um not the very first thing but i i looked for uh, a person that could help me kind work. of mentor you. Yeah, yeah yeah like a spiritual mentor and and what was the focus of this support group uh, as opposed to so the other one. The difference was this support group was focused on how growing up in a traumatic or dysfunctional environment affected me and continues to affect me today. And it's helping me heal from that. It's helping me retrain my brain. Um, we talked about the kind of withdrawal that, that I went through at the end of that relationship. And one of the things I've learned from this group is that we become addicted to the endogenous chemicals. So what did, the what dopamine, what do they call end, endogenous endogenous? So the inside chemicals, oh, okay. the inside pharmacy, okay. um, like the dopamine and adrenaline and cortisol, the stress hormone and whatever else long before we become addicted to anything external. So support groups are funny because, you know, you can get a whole mix of people in there, some that are healthy and some that are not. Um, you know, I I would say to look for safe people. Um, at least that's been key for me. You know, when I go into a support group, I try to identify who the safe people are and you can hear it in the stories. You can hear it in the shares. You can see it in their behaviors. Um, and see it in their eyes a lot of times too. Yeah. Yeah. I completely agree. Completely agree. Yeah. It's, it's really important because, um, once I identify a safe, strong, um, healthy person, I'm like, Hey, can you help me with this? And she did. And that, I would say that's the other thing. Like, I don't think that you can recover alone in isolation. No, I was just talking about that yesterday with a kid who is uh, a pill addict. And he's like, yeah, you know, I think I'm just going to figure out what I got to do and do it on my own. And I said, buddy, human, you cannot recover from whatever it is you're addicted to without human connection. I don't. And who would want to? It's so lonely yeah. doing that, doing it that way. Yeah. But talk more about uh, human human connection. Yeah, gosh, that human connection. It's scary. It's uncomfortable. I get it. Yeah, because he said, it, I'm not a people person. I said, none of us are. <laughs> That's why, how we wound up there is yeah. we, we struggle with relationships, platonic yeah. or romantic or whatever. Yeah, people, people were scary for me. Um, this was totally for me when I went through this process was totally out of the box, out of character, but I wanted to get better. And they say when the pain of change is 
less, then the pain of remaining the same one will surely change. And, and certainly that was the case for me. Like I, I didn't care what I had to do. I was going to not suffer anymore. And, and so, yeah, I don't know. I, I, everybody has their different levels of what is acceptable suffering for them. And for me, it just, I drew the line and I, and I also saw a way to get there. And I think that was the other thing that was missing is you kind of have to have all three, like, can't be like, I wasn't happy with how things were. I wanted things to be better. I, I always knew in my heart, my inner child was like always holding on to this hope of a better place, a better state. And I just didn't know how to get there. The tools weren't given to me growing up. And it sounds like you had to do what we all have to do, which is put down your map and Mm -hmm. go, Hey, what's this group of safe people whose lives are working, who have light in their eyes, who can laugh easily. Show me your map. Take me through your map. Humility. Yeah. Willingness, surrender. And, And the thing that people forget that don't want to ask for help is if you don't ask that safe person for help, you deny that person a chance to be of service and feel better about themselves. And that was something I learned when I became that helper for others. Talk about that. Um, wow. It was a really humbling experience to realize that, oh, I really wasn't a burden every time I called her. I really was helping her too. I really was giving just as much as I was receiving. I didn't really get that. I always felt like I was, I was an imposition. And in my family of origin, if I got help from somebody or they did anything for me, I owed them. And I didn't want to have to owe anybody, mm-hmm. especially somebody I didn't know that well. And, you know, and here I am picking this person that I, I hope that my intuition's right. I hope what I'm seeing is true. <laughs> it, you know, I, but, but here's the thing, the black and white thinking we were talking about. If I pick the wrong person, it's okay. I can start over. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. But, you know, getting back to what did, what did that do for me? Um, being humble and willing enough to surrender to the process that she laid out for me was crucial. And it taught me to trust another person. And it taught me that it showed me what it was, what it looked like to be supported emotionally by another person who wanted nothing in return from you except for you to have a better life. Right. And also because it wasn't a therapist, so it wasn't like some, you know, it wasn't an authority figure mm-hmm. type of relationship. It was somebody who had gone through the stuff that I've gone through or maybe a different version of it. I felt like I wasn't alone in that pain either. And I think you trust their um, suggestions more yeah. because 
They, they've been there. Yeah, they've been there. They've been there. They didn't learn it in a book. They lived it. Yeah. They lived it. Um, well, I'm... I'm I, I have a, re- a weird um, <laughs> observation. I haven't even shared this with her. But doing the, the recovery work with her um, towards the end of the process, um, the really grueling part of the process, she... <laughs> she and I were working together on this, on the, on this stuff one night. And I, I like looked at her and all of a sudden I had this just deep, like sexual attraction. And I was like, Whoa, what is this? But you know what? I think it is. I always confused intimacy with sex growing up. And for the first time I was actually sharing intimacy with somebody mm-hmm. she was she was seeing into my heart and soul and i think that my brain just kind of mixed that up i'm i've never even said this out loud before but i just thought it you know maybe it's worth sharing i don't know if anybody else is no i think that's i think that's great uh i've i've had feelings like that towards uh female therapists before where um and, and I've shared it with them, not in a way to try to get something going, but to right. say, I want to invite you into what my body and my brain are experiencing right now, because I have the feeling this is probably not unusual. And of mm-hmm. course, they always said, no, this is not unusual. This is your way of that. Your your wires got crossed as a kid. And this is, you know, you've you've. You have learned as a as a child to sexualize positive or negative emotions, and this is this is an example of it. Yeah, yeah, that's totally on point with what I think I experienced. Yeah. It was so like, whoa, what was that? But yeah, I, I mean, I let my guard down. So it's pretty amazing, man. Life is so much easier when you find people you can let your guard down mm-hmm. around. It's true. Um, I want to share, though, a couple of the struggles I've had. Mm-hmm. Um, just having narcolepsy and going through this process. So one of the keys to me healing is been, has been feeling my feelings. But doing it with a safe person or in a safe space and kind of retraining my brain that I can feel these feelings and it's okay. And... Give me an example of some of the feelings. Um, so a lot of grief, shame, abandonment, loss, you know, all of these things. So journaling about that and working through those feelings, um, that, that was part of my process. But the the thing with narcolepsy, and I'm sure others experience this too. I think I've heard it mentioned in your podcast. When I would do this work, I would get so tired. Mm. Oh my god, <laughs> it's exhausting, emotionally exhausting. After I talked mm. to you and decided to come and share with you. I got really nervous and this past week I've almost called it off (laughs) and I'm like, no, I know it's uncomfortable, Anna, but this is good for you and it's good to share. 
you know. And and I'm excited that we have um a uh a topic that we've never talked about before and uh another topic that we haven't talked about enough. Uh, I think, which is codependency, but certainly narcolepsy. Um, I'm so glad we got to cover um, something. So I'm glad, I'm, I'm glad uh, we made this happen. And yeah, uh, me too. thank you so much for um, sharing your your strength and your hope and your experience with uh, with us. Sure, it's been a pleasure. Many many thanks to uh, to Anna. Boy, I learned so much about narcolepsy. Um, and I can't believe I didn't make a uh, a joke about her talking about narcolepsy putting me to sleep. Would have would have seemed like an obvious joke. Um, boys, I was editing that episode back. I was like, Jesus, Paul, get some treatment for your ADD. It's um, so many times I, I just steer the conversation off track. Uh, I got to remember to bring that up with uh, with my psychiatrist when I see him. Uh, before I take it out with some surveys, I want to remind you guys uh, that there's a couple of ways to support the podcast if you feel so inclined. You can go to our website, mentalpod.com, and you can make a one-time PayPal donation or my favorite, you can become a monthly donor for as little as five bucks a month. Super easy to set up, and then once you do it, you don't have to worry about it. Um, and uh, five bucks a month may not seem like a lot to you, but it means a lot to me and the podcast because it helps keep it going and we could always use more more budget um it uh yeah uh you can also uh help the show by shopping through our amazon link uh, on our homepage, and then amazon if you buy something will give us uh, a small percentage of the sale and it doesn't cost you any any money you can also um help us non-financially by uh, going to iTunes, writing something nice, giving us a good rating that boosts our ranking, and that brings more listeners to the show. Um, and the more listeners we have, then maybe uh, the more interested in advert advertisers would be in uh, advertising on the show. And you can also help us by spreading the word through social media. That that definitely helps. So um, let's get to some surveys. Oh, you know what? I wanted to. Um, Give a shout out. Uh, my friend and former guest, Amber Tozier, has a book out. It's available through uh, Amazon and it's going to be in bookstores shortly. And it's called Sober Stick Figure, a memoir. And it is great. It's um, about her days of bottoming out uh, drinking and about her life in general. But um, it's illustrated with stick figures and it's really funny and poignant and it's just. Uh, uh, I can't say enough good stuff about it. So I'll put a link uh, to that on our on our website. Uh, another thought I had this last week is uh, I think every workplace bathroom should have a padded, soundproof crying stall. I've read five years of doing the podcast. That is the one thing I know for sure as we need. We need that crying stall. We need a need a safe place. I I can't tell you how, especially people uh, who have heard their surveys read while they're at work. I can't tell you how many people email me and say, "I was shaking, I broke down, and I started crying. It was great and cathartic, but I couldn't keep my shit together." Um, so let's somebody out there, some business person, let's make that happen. Start uh, start marketing that. Uh, here's another thought I had uh, this week 
is uh, I got more angry at twice in a row being served Earl Grey tea instead of regular organic breakfast tea than I am at people uh, who've emotionally and sexually abused me. I don't know what that is about. Uh, maybe because I don't know the person that served me the wrong tea, but uh, I've never been able to, or I should say rarely been able to access that kind of rage. And I'm going to say that it's not anything psychological going on inside me. I think that's how shitty Earl Grey tea is. Who invented Earl Grey tea? Who thought, you know, breakfast tea is so good Let's add the smell of a first grade teacher's overused perfume to it. Let's see. Let's see if that doesn't bring it up a notch. Oh, Earl Grey. All right, I'm done. I'm done ranting. This is a, these are all struggle in a sentence surveys, I think. Um, I don't know. Oh, I think I got a happy moment and an awfulsome moment. I don't know why I'm preparing you. I don't want to surprise you with the variety of... Oh, I hate myself. <laughs> I don't really. I annoy myself more than anything. Oh, no, Paul. You hate yourself. I've been hanging around you long. And... Oh, come on. Come on, DJ voice. I'm, I'm just... I'm in a depression trough. I just really don't need you pounding on me on top of my my self-hatred. All right, Paul. I'm going to be doing some tequila chasers. If you need me, I'll be next door at TGI Fridays. Hardcore Polka writes about her sex addiction. Oh, this is such a good one. This one should be a t-shirt. The best way to get over a man is to get under a different one. That is a perfect fucked up t-shirt. Thank you for that. Uh, a guy who calls himself typical writes about his ADD in the middle of a conversation with a perfectly lovely person I just met and realizing I've missed most of what they've said because I've been thinking about the design on the wallpaper behind their head. Very much relate to that one. Baby girl writes about her perfectionism. Working two jobs 60-plus hours a week, both with a one-hour commute each way, even though I don't need to work at all, and going back to college and applying for grad school and having an organic garden and training for a marathon and cooking gourmet meals and being a sex goddess and trying to figure out how to squeeze in, becoming a volunteer court advocate for abused children, and deciding to drop the most selfish thing, therapy, since no one directly benefits from that but myself, and since if I can't do all of those other things, then I'm a failure as a human being, after all. No one ever says, wow, you've consistently gone to therapy every week and made that a priority. Good for you. Well, then let me be the one that says, wow, you've consistently gone to therapy every week and made that a priority. Good for you. I get it. It's You know, the, here's the excuse that, that a lot of people use is... Um, I don't, I don't have the money for therapy. And I know there are a lot of people where there, that is a valid excuse. But I've heard so many people I know who have the money for it, 
but they just don't really want to go to therapy. And those people, I cast to the bowels of hell. That might seem a little bit uh, overreacting, but the bowels of hell, actually, um, there are, there's a lot of vacancy. Uh, people are, it is no longer the cool place in hell to live. Um, it used to be like in the 70s, everybody moved to the bowels of hell and a uh, lot of dead uh, punk people there. But now um, the West Wing of hell has become very gentrified and people, I'm so tired of this bit at this point. Well then Paul, let me come in and wrap it up. How about a rock block? A little bit of foreigner. Strange glove. No, strange love. I'm also having trouble reading. Maybe I'm having an aneurysm. That would be kind of entertaining. The, <laughs> the internet's first on-mic aneurysm. Uh, strange love writes about uh, her exercise addiction and body dysmorphic disorder. I hate that I love doing what I really hate which is trying to change who I really am by over-exercising. But if who I am is what I really hate, am I doing damage or am I actually doing right? I might need to get a psychology degree to unravel uh, the logic of that. And uh, I love it and I don't even know what it means. And he suggestions to make the podcast better oh yes this is why i said the thing about um she wants to know if there's a place where you can read uh how other people have filled out the surveys yeah just click on that thing that says a browse responses as opposed to uh filling out this the survey um so if you've filled out the survey you will have to go back to the page where you entered um chose the survey because there's two places it'll say for instance the shame and secret survey and you can pick to either take the survey or read people's responses and then once you click on read people's responses a page opens up and then you click browse responses and then you can kind of um rifle back and forth through them uh, i don't know why i picked the verb rifle it seems a little harsh a little aggressive uh for the uh, gentle nature of uh confessional surveys but that's the word i chose and we're going to stick with it sick chick 666 writes about um her autoimmune disease aside from the hour with my therapist who experiences autoimmune issues of her own every interaction has become a struggle to placate these other people who aggressively suggest how to treat the physical issues that they cannot even begin to relate to let alone trust that i can make my own medical decisions i can't imagine how frustrating that has to be i cannot imagine um Snapshot from her life. Calling a friend to talk about taking a Western prescription medication for a side effect of severe hypothyroidism and being told I enjoy being sick if I'm choosing hormonal treatment instead of tea. As long as it's not Earl Grey. Explaining that my insurance has to cover my allergy testing and digestive biopsies before a naturopath can adjust my diet. Wondering if I'll lose a 10-year friendship with my paleo-adhering kombucha making massage therapist friend if they found out I've chosen hormone replacement at age 27 so I don't continue to lose my hair. You know, 
fuck that fuck that friend fuck that friend if that's if that if you speaking your truth sends them away they were meant to be said, sent away and they don't deserve your friendship look at me all high and mighty I was the only, what if the only time I could get high and mighty was when I was in a trough of depression? Wouldn't that be an interesting two dynamics battling against each other? Oh, look at Paul sitting up in bed, all cocky. <sighs> Pleasantly irrational, writes about her depression. I'm fighting a never-ending war with demons in my head, except they get the U.S. military and I can only use my hands. That's a good one. That's a good one. Thank you for that. Bedtime Beliefs writes about being a sex crime victim. When no one is abusing me, I feel incredibly lost. Wow, that is heavy. That is heavy. I've got to with I've got to assume that the abuse was repetitive that that was just something a conditioning that that happened but uh oh sending you some love sending you some love but I'm sending it ground I you know I'll, I'll second day air the love but uh Budget the budget is tight here, and I cannot overnight love any longer. It's just not financially feasible. Wounded Warrior writes about her anger issues. I am the incredible Hulk when my rage is triggered. All I see is mad. I feel no pain. I hear nothing. I just need to destroy and slaughter. I call it my monster. It protects my inner child in a very unhealthy way. Snapshot from her life. My emotional pain is so intense, sometimes I cut my wrists to ease and numb that pain. A few months ago, I accidentally cut too deep and severed my tendon. It was gnarly. I could see down to my bone. I had to get stitches. I got nerve damage, but it didn't hurt at all. It felt so good. So, so good. Wow. I can't imagine how intense that pain must be, that emotional pain, that the physical pain feels euphoric. This was filled out by Agent Cooper 445. And um, and I, I felt like I blew, I blew that last one off. Thank you for sharing that. Is that me being codependent, worrying, feeling like I have to take care of everybody? Probably. I don't have time for another support group. Fuck you guys. How dare you? How dare you suggest that I need to go to a support group? Agent Cooper 445 uh, deals with depression and anxiety, and she shares a snapshot from her life. I just started crying in the middle of my intramural volleyball league for no reason other than Wellbutrin makes me weepy. Fortunately, a few of my friends on the team understood, but now I'm ashamed because I embarrassed myself in front of a crowd of strangers. I wish I knew how to make everything better. 
I don't think everything needs to be made better. I think it was okay just the way it was. And we've all, at some point, cried in a public or semi-public place. And have any of us ever, you know, gotten home and uh, gotten home from being out in public and gone, Jesus Christ, I saw this fucking asshole crying. Oh, keep it to yourself. No. We don't. And thank God your friends were there and they understood. This is uh, an email I got. Um, and it says, I am uh, Mrs. Nicole uh, Benoit Marquois, and I have been suffering from ovarian cancer disease. And the doctor says that I have just few days to leave. Um, I don't know where she's going. Uh, I, God, I got to get a hold of her because I think she needs to stay around her doctor. Um, I am from uh, Paris, France, but based in Africa, Burkina Faso, since eight years ago as a businesswoman dealing with gold exportation. Now that I am about to end the race like this, without any family members and no child, uh, I have three million U.S. dollars in Africa Development Bank, Burkina Faso, which I instructed the bank to give St. Andrew's Missionary Home in Burkina Faso. Faso. Those of you that heard the previous episode know that I am not a fan of the name Andrew. And uh, this lady is pushing my buttons. Anyways, she's in need, so I'm going to continue reading. But my mind is not at rest because I am writing this letter now through the help of my computer beside my sick bed. Um, I hope I hope that um, that her sick bed has some type of. Uh, deck that she can set her computer on um but then again she's leaving in uh in a few days i also have 4.5 million u.s dollars at ecobank here in burkina faso and i instructed the bank to transfer the fund to you as foreigner uh i think somebody told her i'm in the band foreigner and i'm a little concerned that it's fund it's not funds so maybe it's Maybe it's just one gigantic dollar bill. Continuing. Uh, I instructed the bank to transfer the fund to you as foreigner that will apply to the bank after I have gone that they should release the fund to him or her, but you will assure me that you will take 50% of the fund and give 50% to the orphanage's home in your country for my heart to rest. I don't even know what that sentence means, but... um, I like the heart behind it, and um, I'm not down with orphanages, but I am down with oranges. Um, so I, what I can do is I can give 50% of that money to some citrus-based businesses here on the West Coast, and I hope that that is okay with you, and I hope that my response reaches you uh, before you leave your sickbed. Um, respond to me immediately via my private email address. Uh, for further details, since I have just few days to end my life due to the ovarian cancer disease. Um, you know, I gotta say, since you have such a short amount of time left, I think that you should stop referring to it as the ovarian cancer disease and just call it cancer. That's gonna buy you a couple of seconds. Um, 
And then she writes, hoping you will understand my point. Uh, I'm going to be honest. I didn't understand a single thing you said, but I wish you a speedy recovery. And, um, and I appreciate you reaching out and that you are a fan of the band Foreigner because they did some really, really terrific work in the 80s. And um, I think there was a consistency to their awkwardly shot music videos that is unparalleled. And the fact that you would think that I was a part of such a, um, a consistent, important piece of pop art almost makes me want to get involved in your hustle. This is, did that go on too long? This is, oh, Paul, everything you do goes on too long. Quad Cities DJ, just once, I'd like you to be the nice voice in my head and not the mean voice. Not going to happen, Paul. <laughs> going to kick it off. That's right, with a little bit of foreigner. E is for elephant. <laughs> I'm second guessing every second I open my mouth on this entire episode. <sighs> e is for elephant, writes about her love addiction. Every time he does or says something shitty, it doesn't make me love him less. It makes me love myself less for still loving him. That's a little too long to be on a t-shirt, but that's that's Hall of Fame. Millaby, who is gender fluid, writes about their bulimia. It's letting yourself lose control just to experience the euphoria of regaining it. Thank you for that. That um, I'd never... You guys are so good at helping those of us who don't experience that issue understand what it's like in your brain and your body uh, about their compulsive self-injury it's as if I let myself heal it's it's as if if I let myself heal I may cease existing and then a snapshot from uh, their life when I was 10, on holiday, I met a girl of similar age. Every day of the holiday, we played a game where we practiced sex so we knew what to do when we grew up and married. It didn't seem weird. We both knew what to do and that it had to be secret because we had both been taught this game by our daddies. Oh, that is so fucking dark. Victims have an uncanny ability to recognize and find one another, especially when they are kids. It makes me sad that I don't know how to answer questions about firsts. Do I talk about my actual first kiss, first time, etc., or do I talk about the first time it was consensual? And was this consensual, given we were both children? No one should have to question things like this. Oh. Sending you the biggest, warmest hug. And thank you for expressing one of the ripples that a non-survivor can never imagine a survivor experiences. The cornucopia of mind fuckery that sexual abuse leaves in its wake. 
some of the worst stuff around sexual abuse are the things that are dealt with years after the event itself. Ashley writes about her OCD. It's easier to clean everything I touch and scrub my hands for five minutes than to figure out a time in my schedule and find the money to go to therapy. Um, and speaking of money and therapy, you know, I said earlier that some people use it as an excuse. Um, for people where it's not an excuse, where they truly can't find the money to go to therapy, um, I've mentioned this before on the podcast, but Google low-fee therapy and the name of your town or city. And uh, you can also try uh, dialing 211 and finding out what uh, resources are available in your, uh, in your area. Snapshot from her life, spending 45 minutes walking to different floors in my office building to find an empty bathroom to wash my hands without anyone watching and judging me. And then any comments to make the podcast better? Uh, thank you uh, for this podcast. It's been so helpful to hear from other people who are having issues. Also, I loved watching dinner in a movie, uh, like I would get excited when it was on. Thanks for being a part of my life in two very odd ways. I had to read that. I had to read that because when I was a little kid, I said, I want to be oddly entertaining, but not in one way. I want to be it in two ways. And finally, my dream has been realized. Uh, Samantha writes, um, gives us a snapshot of her life. Her issues are ADD, anxiety, alcoholism, PTSD and being a sex crime victim. And uh, she writes, I literally practice a straight face I keep for every time I end a session with a client who tells me I am insightful, helpful, the best therapist they've had, a decent human being, dot, dot, dot. I want to laugh out loud because they have no idea that I am totally faking being put together. Don't they know I'm a total imposter? Someone once told me they thought that therapists never had anxiety. I told them it wasn't true, but I still feel like the only one. And first of all, I want to say I've, I've read many uh, of, of these of therapists describe this and that they have issues too. And, and I want to say, but you are keeping it together for that hour when you're in there with your client. And the fact that you experience all those other things makes you an even better therapist. To me, the perfect therapist is the one who has the issues outside of the hour that they're with their client and is able to be present and helpful to funnel all their experience into that hour. To me, that makes the perfect therapist. So go fuck yourself. That's what I'm saying. I am, I'm wedging myself between your mean voice and you, and I'm saying, she's had enough. Step the fuck away from the lady and just drive away. She's doing good in the world, and you're being an asshole. This is a happy moment filled out by, am I becoming my mother? And she writes, one of my happiest moments was when I sat in my third therapist's office and she looked at me and told me I no longer had to come in as regularly anymore because I was doing great. After three years of consistent therapy plus medication, I was ecstatic. I no longer had to come in and sit in this small dark office and tell her about my feelings. The crying every week in session had stopped a long time ago and I was finally feeling like I had made it. 
Love it. Love it. And then finally, we have an awfulsome moment. Um, I think it's a happy moment, actually. But I, I understand how she could uh, consider it um, awfulsome. Uh, and she writes, I have DID, and my husband, while knowing about my disorders, had never actually interacted with my alters. Um, for those of you that, that aren't familiar, um, alters uh, is short for alternate uh, personalities. I believe that's what it's short for. At least for me, that's what it's short for. Oh, for the love of God, Paul, shut the fuck up and move ahead. All right. That was weird. That was half me, half DJ. While he was away from home, my alters presented themselves to a few of my friends who recorded the conversations with my alters. I told my husband about it, and he wanted to listen to it. He wanted to hear my alters for the first time and be there for me for what what would be the first time uh, slash I would be hearing my own alters speak. It was an hour-long recording. We sat in silence and listened to it said nothing to each other for that full hour. Some moments were very difficult to listen to, and hearing the changes in my voice was disturbing, uh, comma, unrecognizable. While I listened to it, there was a lot of me telling myself, wishing really, over and over, that my husband loves me and won't go running for the hills once the recording ends. When the recording did end, we sat in silence for a while longer, and then the first thing that came out of his mouth was, do you think I could claim your alters as dependents? I looked at him in horror and saw the smile on his face, and then I started laughing hysterically. Somehow, some way, he always knows the right thing to say. Not only was he sticking around, but if my alters are sticking around a while longer, he'd really just like to, them to help out financially. Amazing. Wow. Thank you for that. Thank you so much for that. Well, we did it. We did it. We made it through. We made it through the trough. Uh, I didn't. Uh, I didn't collapse. My My brain. <laughs> oh. Let's just wrap this fucking thing up, huh? Agreed, Paul. That hurts my voice. Uh, I hope you heard something that helped you tonight. I hope you know you're not alone. Boy, that almost feels like I'm on an autopilot uh, doing that. And I hope that if you're out there and you're listening and you... Well, maybe, maybe I shouldn't have done an episode tonight. Maybe. That's me shuffling my papers, buying a little time to figure out how I'm going to get out of this bit. Talk about Herbert's butthole. Herbert's butthole is to Earth what the sun is to the galaxy. I don't even know what that means. I'm just trying to wrap up this fucking show that has gone off the rails. And uh, I don't know how to do it. Herbert? All right. I hope you heard something tonight that uh, entertained you, comforted you, enlightened you, um, made you laugh, made you cry, pissed you off. Eh, maybe not pissed you off. Um, 
but I feel better. I always feel better after I talk to you guys. Um, I was really considering not doing a show um, this week because I just felt so stuck, just in cement. And um, and I feel better after this uh, hour and 17 minutes. Um, so thank you uh, if you stuck stuck through the whole episode and um and i you know what what's nice is i know that you guys at least i think i do that you feel me and you understand me cuz when i talk into the microphone i picture people who are rooting for me and i never felt that way in stand up comedy i always felt like it was me versus people who had made up their mind that they didn't like me. I always knew that there were people that enjoyed my stand-up comedy, but really I felt like I was out there to to do battle. And here I feel like <laughs> I feel like it's you and me teaming up to battle my DJ mean inner voice. I don't care for this. It's getting very awkward. Oh, I might have to listen to some guess who. That was weird. That was kind of a, that was kind of a, that was kind of a Quad Cities DJ with Johnny Carson. All right, let's wrap this fucking thing up. All right, you know what to do. Go to therapy, go to your support groups. If you need to take a nap, take a nap. Be kind to yourself. We all make mistakes. Forgive yourself. Don't be a dick. And whatever you do, if somebody orders organic breakfast tea, don't serve Earl Grey. You're not alone. Thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.